And so we're in week six of our Bear Fruit series. These are the nine aspects of the one fruit of the Spirit. You ready? This is the last week that you have a guide. Next week, it is by memory. But the fruit of the Spirit is... And self-control. These are the fruit that grow in the life of those who are in Christ. Not fruit that might grow. This is the fruit that grows in the life of those who are in Christ. If you want to know if, if God's spirit is transforming you, how's your love, your joy, your peace, your patience? This week, how is your kindness? So uh, on its face, it seems like this is a really simple idea, right? Um, Just be nice. (laughs) Uh, Be kind to others. We tell our kids this all the time. And in our current culture, it's a really important teaching. Uh, We live in an age that's really anything but kind. And I don't know if maybe sometimes we're just trying to be funny or maybe we're really pushing back on somebody that we disagree with. But especially on social media, there's just an unkind spirit in our culture. And it's really like making its way through all of our public conversations, some of our private conversations, and it's, it's changing us. Like it's changing who we are as a people, and it's not healthy. So it seems like this should be a pretty uh, easy message to preach. Um, but really, I mean, what more is there to say? Um, be nice. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Good sermon. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. <laughs> So there has to be more to it. You know there always is. Uh, let's dig in and see what God has for us today. So we'll start by talking about what kindness isn't. And first, as Beth pointed to, kindness isn't just being nice. Anyone can be nice. Even the biggest jerks among us. In any, in any given moment, any person can make the choice to say a kind word of encouragement. To let the guy pulling out of HEB go in front of you. Anyone can be nice. But we are talking about the fruit of God's spirit. So there has to be more to it because this is a fruit that only God can grow within us. And it's a fruit that transforms us from the inside. It's not just something we do from time to time. So kindness isn't just being nice. Kindness isn't also just giving to others. At any given moment, any person can extend a helping hand. Now there's the Greek word philanthropia and it's used in the New Testament and it's often translated as kindness. And obviously, it's where we get our word philanthropy. And philanthropy is good. But anyone with resources can be philanthropic. Anyone can give out of plenty. There has to be more to it. Because the fruit of kindness is a fruit that only God can grow within us. So you all know that I love working with the biblical languages. I bore you with it all the time. But to be honest with you, there's a reason. I really believe that God intentionally chose these two particular ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek. And I think he chose them to communicate his scripture because they express ideas in ways that no other languages do, especially when you put them together. So Hebrew is like this painfully literal language. And Mark talked to you about this a little bit last week. He told you that the Hebrew idea of patience is described by God having a long nose, And then he told you why. Do you remember if you were here? That's what patience means in Hebrew. When Roland preaches on self-control in a couple weeks, he's going to tell you about God's hot nose. (laughs) And I'm going to let him illustrate that for you because it can get a little messy. 
Um, so I had a professor, uh, he described Hebrew as like physical art. It's like a physical art form. But then he described Greek as mental math. Hebrew is pictures. Greek is ideas. Greek is patterned. It's reasoned. It's logical. But when those two are brought together, you get a fullness of thought that you don't get from any one language. The word repentance is an example that I've used often. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv. And it simply means to literally turn your body and go in the other direction. That's all the word means. So anytime you turn your body and go the other way, that's shuv. And that's how Hebrew describes the act of repentance. In Greek, it's the word metanoia. And that means change your mind. But it's a complete transformation of the way you think. Think in a new way. It's like installing a new operating system. So when you put the two together, you have body and mind. A full human experience of repentance that's described in a unique way by these two ancient languages. So the Greek word for kindness that's used in Galatians 5, it's not the word philanthropia like some people might expect. It's actually a different word, and it's a word krestosis or krestos. Now some of you may know the Greek word for Messiah is Christos. I wonder if they look familiar for a reason. This word Christos, it has an Old Testament counterpart that's a lot of fun to say and you get to spit on your neighbors. It's chesed. If you want to try it, you can. I don't know, but chesed. You want to try it? No, no. Okay, it's fine. Uh, when you go home, you can spit on your family. Chesed. That's the Old Testament counterpart for the Greek word krestos. And this is how one author describes these words. He says they're difficult to translate because they stand for a cluster of ideas, for love, for mercy, for grace, for kindness. He said they wrap themselves up in all the positive attributes of God. So chesed and its Greek counterpart in Galatians 5, krestos, these describe the Lord's most cherished characteristics. Chesed is a quality that moves someone to act on behalf of someone else without asking the question, what's in it for me? Biblical kindness is acting on behalf of someone else without even considering what's in it for me. And it can be translated as loving kindness, steadfast love, or loyal love. So to really understand what Galatians 5 means when it tells us that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, we have to dig not only into that word, but we have to dig into ideas. And these ideas appear all throughout the scripture. So we're going to do that today by looking at a couple different stories. Uh, the first one, very beginning of the book, comes at the end of Genesis. We have a man named Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. Later, his name is changed to Israel. And we find him at the end of Genesis near death. And as he's dying, he asks his sons, his 12 sons, he asks one of the sons, Joseph in particular, he says, make me a promise that you will do an act of hesed, that you will extend to me loyal love. So after he dies in Genesis 50, it says this, his son Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel or Jacob, same person. So the physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. Now when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath 
and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb that I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Now you might be wondering, why does this matter? How is this an act of hesed or loyal love? At the beginning of the story, where are they? Where is Joseph and where is now his father's embalmed body? Where is it? They're in Egypt. Do you know how far that is from the land that Jacob asked to be buried? In Canaan? Hundreds of miles. Around 450 miles, depending on exactly where they started. Y'all, that's Houston to Oklahoma City. Or Houston to Mobile. 450 miles through the desert, on foot and camel, with his father's embalmed body, simply so he can honor his dying wish that he would be buried next to his ancestors. Chesed, loyal love, acting on behalf of someone else without considering what's in it for me. There's another familiar story in the Old Testament. That's the story of Ruth and Naomi. And I'm going to give you a 47-second break from listening to me so you can hear how the Bible Project describes this one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man. But tragically, her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. If you know the story, you know that Naomi had nothing to offer Ruth. In fact, Naomi had become kind of a bitter person, a bitter and angry person. She changed her name when she went back home. She told people, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitterness, because I've become bitter about my life. She had nothing to offer Ruth. Yet Ruth says this to her. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That is strong language. That's covenantal language. Those are the greatest promises that we can make. Ruth's willingness, commitment to join her life with this woman, Naomi, leaving her own people behind, going to a foreign land simply so she could care for and help provide for her mother-in-law. Chesed, loyal love, acting on behalf of someone else without considering what's in it for me. Most of you are likely familiar with the story of David and Goliath. David defeats this giant, but he's not king yet. The king at that time was a man named Saul. Now, because David defeats this giant, he's becoming really popular among the people. They're singing songs of praise to David. Saul's not a huge fan of that. He grows to hate David, tries to kill him over and over again. 
And in the midst of all that drama, David develops a deep, loving friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and it makes things really complicated. Jonathan knows that God is going to remove his father as king one day. He sees where this is going, and he knows he's going to raise his friend David up. So in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan says to David, and I'm paraphrasing from the story, but he says, may Yahweh, may God be with you as he's been with my father. May he raise you up. And if I'm still alive when he does, will you please show me chesed so that I may not die? I know my dad wants to kill you and he knows that we're friends. He might want to kill me too. So show me chesed. And don't cut your hesed from my family that's to come. Not even when Yahweh cuts all of your enemies from the face of the land. David makes this commitment to him, but y'all, it is a huge commitment. Yes, Jonathan is David's dear friend. But in the ancient world, when you replace a king, the first thing you do is kill all the potential heirs to the throne. That's the only way to make sure that the throne is not contested. Jonathan and all of his descendants would have been David's political rivals. It could have potentially caused chaos in Israel. But David makes this covenant with his friend anyway. Now that's not even the important part. The story continues. Jonathan will later die in battle. And David's crushed because the story tells us that he loved his friend as much as he loved himself. So then later in 2 Samuel 9, I want you to listen to how David remembers the covenant he made with his friend. It says this, David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? There was a man named Ziba who was the steward that served King Saul. Remember the the king that tried to kill David? He answered King David. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. It goes on to say, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Listen, not only was Mephibosheth his rival, the grandson of the king that tried to kill him. Mephibosheth was lame and crippled, so he's an outcast in a society. Even when it describes where it's from in another verse, it says he's from Lodabar, which is the Hebrew way of saying he's from nowhere. (laughs) He's from the backwoods. This is no one from nowhere, and Mephibosheth knows that. What, who am I that you would notice a dead dog like me? So David goes back to Ziba, that steward of Saul, and says to him, I have given Mephibosheth everything that belonged to his grandfather and his family. You, Ziba, and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that Mephibosheth will be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And the story ends, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Hesed, loving kindness, not only allowing this potential enemy to continue to live, but giving back to him everything that belonged to his family, acting on behalf of someone else without considering what's in it for me. 
One last story, this one from the New Testament. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus is telling a story uh, to a teacher of the law, and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, it's like a day's wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Jesus says to this expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In this story, Jesus is explaining the meaning of the great commandment to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And who was the injured man's neighbor? The one who had mercy on him, the one who acted with loyal love. And some of you may know, you may be familiar with some of the details of the story of Samaritan. They were the enemies of the Jews. We have gone from loyal love between a father and son, loyal love into a relationship that somebody chose to be in, loyal love between friends, extending on to a potential enemy, to now loyal love expressed between actual enemies. God's loyal love is a quality that moves someone to act for the benefit of someone else without considering what's in it for me. This is why I love the Hebrew language, this physical art and the Greek language, this mental math, because the words they give us, God's hesed and his krestos, they can be translated as mercy, compassion, kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love and grace. They're such full ideas. But as you can probably tell, my favorite, my favorite way to translate these ideas into English is the phrase loyal love. Because depending on the situation, sometimes the emphasis is on loyal And sometimes the emphasis is on love. There's one author who says it like this. He says it's more than emotional or romantic love. It's more than even familial love. It's deeper than any social expectation or duty. It's deeper than shifting emotions. And it goes beyond what's deserved or what is earned by the one receiving it. It's more than just an inclination or an emotion. God's loyal love incarnates itself in action. Incarnate means to put on flesh. It's God's love in the flesh. Who honored his father by carrying his body hundreds of miles through the desert just so he can be buried with his ancestors? Who cared for her widowed mother-in-law standing by her side, leaving her own people to become a part of her life? Who cared for his friend and eventually his own competition the heir to the man who tried to have him killed time and time again, and who was the injured enemy's neighbor? The ones who showed loyal love. Sometimes the emphasis is on loyal, other times it's on love. Now look, all of these stories of Hesed, these acts of loyal love, they are done from one human to another. But you have to know a sermon on this wouldn't be complete if I didn't tell you 
75% of the time that these words are used in the Bible, they're describing God. They're describing what God has done. They describe God's self-giving acts of loyal love and kindness towards us. The greatest of which is what? Right? Self-sacrificing, not asking what's in it for me on behalf of those I love, on behalf of those who are even my enemies. Someone doing something on behalf of others without asking what's in it for me. The stories that we went over today, they are just examples of God's loyal love in action among us. So I want to step outside the Bible really quick and just give you two uh, just quick, really practical examples of how these ancient stories, how they might look today. Um, So one from our early years in life, we're getting ready for VBS tomorrow, so I want to show you something from a kid, and then one from our later years in life. Uh, Watch this first. Well, there's this girl at school, and I used to ignore her. I felt so sorry for her because hardly anybody was her friend because she did all this goofy stuff, and some boys even made fun of her. So I, I talked to myself a little while while I was at the lunch table with my friends. And I said, that girl needs a friend and I'm going to try and be. And I'm going to try to make friends with her. And when I tried to, it just happened. We, she was so kind to me. I'm like, this is the friend I need. I forgot how we started to be, become best friends. This started to happen. And now we like hang out with each other. We try to find each other at recess. We try to sit at the same lunch table if it's not too crowded. We hang out with each other all the time. I love the way kids tell those stories. Like I gave of myself to be friends with this person who didn't have any friends because she did all this weird stuff. <laughs> like, she, like She's just goofy, to be honest with you. Look, anybody can be nice, right? Anybody can offer a helping hand now and again but it's the fruit of God's spirit that leads us to see others as ourselves, no matter how weird or goofy they might be. It allows us to see others as the image bearers of God, just as we are. And when we see them that way, then we can truly extend the loyal love of God, even if we stand to lose something for doing so. I mean, you may miss how powerful that story is because the girl is so cute, (laughs) but she not only did that, Without regard for the question, what's in it for me? I want you to think about what she really did. She risked becoming an outcast by making friends with an outcast. She not only did that, refusing to consider what was in it for her, she didn't stop to think, what might this cost me? She offered that kindness anyway. That's the fruit of God's spirit. The final example, and this is one, sadly, that most of us are all familiar with in our own families. A man who's been married to his sweet bride for 60 years, and the wife's cancer has left her unable to care and provide for her daily needs. There are doctors and nurses that provide care for her, and they do so out of an honorable sense of duty and responsibility. It's their job. But it's the husband who, in some of the most practical ways, has already lost his partner. It's the husband who sits by her side, who helps her get dressed in the morning, who holds her close as the treatment takes its toll. Knowing that their life together will never be the same, we know how the story typically ends. 
but committed, loyal, loving partner who stays by her side until the very end. And of course, that presents itself in many different ways. The roles often change. It's many times wives offering this care for their husbands, of course. It's children for their parents. Tragically, sometimes parents for their children. It can be dear friends that would do this for one another. No matter, it's chesed. It's loyal love. Those two images in our time, that's what Galatians 5 means when it's describing for us the fruit of God's kindness. It's not just be nice. It's more than don't be a jerk. It's acting on behalf of someone else without considering what's in it for me. Now, one final thought, and this is really practical. I I do think in our culture, one of the reasons that we're not really kind to each other um, is just because it takes more time to be kind, right? Maybe we're not being unkind, but oftentimes we're just ignoring because it takes time to stop and notice them. It takes time to stop and figure out what might they need. It takes time to let someone who's in a rush go in front of you in line. It takes time to give of yourself. It's a sacrifice. And it's hard to do, especially when you don't stand to benefit from that sacrifice in any way. This world has taught us, why would you do something if you're not going to benefit from it? One of my favorite authors, his name is Stanley Hauerwas, and he says this. He says, God's kindness is the recognition that I have time in this world to love another in a manner that does not try to control them. And do you know why I have time? Because every second I have is not my time, it's God's time. And every second he gives me, he's given me an opportunity to recognize that. As I've been preparing and going through and getting ready for these sermons each week, as I reflect on the growing fruit of the spirit of my own life and how I do or don't bear that fruit, as I look for signs that God is making me more loving and joyful, peaceful and patient, I have to also learn to recognize that regardless of the hectic pace that I've chosen to live my life, that I have time because it's God's time. I have the time to offer God's loving kindness to someone else. And whether it's a father, a mother-in-law, a dear friend, his children, or a stranger, even an enemy laying beaten and bloody on the side of the road, I have time. I can slow down and I can see where a need is. And I can make the choice to meet that need without considering what's in it for me. That loyal love, that biblical kindness, it is an aspect of the fruit of God's spirit and it is growing in you if you are in Christ. Maybe it's just a seed that sprouted, but it's in you and it's evidence that Christ is in you. So you've heard these stories, we've heard ancient ones from scripture, we've heard some modern examples too, so, right, so what? Uh, It's really simple. What were Jesus' final words in that parable of the Good Samaritan? What did he say to that expert in the law? Go and do likewise. So what for today? Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, as always, grateful. Um, Grateful for the way that you have used a couple thousand years so many different families and stories 
these two ancient languages, the way that you have weaved all of this together throughout history so that we could be here today equipping and encouraging one another, getting each other ready so that when we leave this building, we are making a difference, not only in the lives of the people that we meet, but we are making a difference for the kingdom. That you have used all of this time that you have woven together all of these stories so that people would come to know how much you love them and that you would choose people like us to be a part of that. A flawed failure like me. That you would use me to do the incredible work, the privileged work of telling someone else how much they're loved. Of reminding somebody that deep down they look like you and that you are ready and willing to do the work of transforming them into that complete image in which you made them. It is good news. It is a gift. We are grateful. And now as always, we pray for the courage and the strength to do something with it, to take what we have breathed in and exhale out into the world. Show us the opportunities we have every day to do it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.